calling all Swifties and champions of change. Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Welcome to the Lady Boss interview series. I'm Kat McDavid, and I'm interviewing women leaders in the healthcare industry about one big thing. In this episode, I had the fortune to interview Dr. Cerise Elliott. Dr. Elliott is a program director for the clinical interventions and diagnostics branch of the Division of Neuroscience at the National Institute on Aging. Dr. Elliott tells me about her one big thing, increasing diversity and representation in research, and talks about how having courage and cold calling local universities as a high school sophomore in Omaha put her on the path to completing her PhD in neuroscience. Thank you for having me, Kat. What I really, um, you know, I always had good teachers as a child, and uh, they were very interesting, and they were always like, science is fun, and I just kind of led through that, because when you're when you find interesting people you want to follow and um then later uh I wanted a work opportunity uh so I cold called the university and I asked to work in laboratories um and I was uh, able as a sophomore in high school to develop my own scientific project really Um, yeah and you're kind of learning you're kind of learning like the scientific method as a high school student and um as a college student um I met um, you know, I, I networked as a high school student because here I am, this brown child in, in, as a sophomore in high school in a laboratory. And um, so they were really interested in kind of retaining me. Um, and so I ended up uh, going to that university uh, for school and um, again, following teachers who are interesting, um, one of the professors in the chemistry department had a music chemical manifestation where he would do chemical demonstrations for all the elementary schools. And it was a really interesting way to sell chemistry and how chemistry is fun um, in an uh, uh, elementary kind of manner. And uh, I joined him for like seven years teaching wow. elementary kids uh, chemistry. And I, I became a chemistry major because of, um, of, that, of that teacher. And um, also I started working in the laboratory uh, at the local medical center and I did some AIDS research, cancer research, and um, I ended up doing multiple sclerosis research where that um, professor allowed me and um, uh, invited me to do a PhD program with her. 
after I finished my chemistry degree. And um, I, I agreed because it was a good time that I had. So uh, I spent five years at the University of Nebraska Medical Center doing my PhD wow. in neuroscience and um, studying multiple sclerosis and the analogy behind that science. And, um, you know, after kind of following the teachers and following um, different ways, I wanted to figure out what can I do outside of the laboratory? And there's always in grad school, this discussion of alternative careers, if you don't want to do the next step of a postdoc. Mm -hmm. Um, And I learned about technology transfer and uh, patents and lawyering. Lawyering was like an option if I wanted to go to school. And, uh, but I ended up meeting individuals from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, They had an office of technology transfer office and they had postdoc positions there. So I I left, I graduated my PhD and I ended up at NIH um, for a couple of years doing technology transfer policy. Then I transferred over and um, because now you're in DC, you learn about scientific policy. and then I ended up as a program director um, at the National Institute on Aging. And I've been there the last um, 13 years. Wow. And uh, I uh, manage uh, the Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. Uh, they are uh, large programs of consortia that work on Alzheimer's disease research in different states across the country. And currently we have 33 of those centers. And I also um, managed, um, for the time, health disparities research and health equity research in Alzheimer's disease research. That is um, so cool. Yeah, I've had a good adventure and kind of, like I said, followed the right people and kind of made the right choices. Yeah, it sounds like you had so many people that inspired you and, and helped you out. And, and but I mean, it's, it's, it's not just luck, right? You mentioned that as a sophomore, you cold call the university <laughs> because yeah. you, you were so interested in the field. I think that's amazing. And it sounds like you did a lot of that networking on your own. So it's very cool. Uh, yeah, it's a good skill to have. Networking is like the number one, like any kind of pivot you want to make. It's all about like who you know. Yeah. And, and it sounds like that's how you've gotten to where you are because it's, it's not not a huge diversion. Right. But I mean, Alzheimer's research, health equity research and policy. And um, it sounds like you you had people that kind of guided you that way that that you you actively networked. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely provide, you know, I'm I'm in the right place at the right time doing the things that I wanted to do. I mean, one of the things that, you know, as I was interviewing to become part of the National Institute on Aging was I was in the middle of caring for my grandfather who was going through the end of stage. So it was kind of one of those things where you think the universe is kind of speaking to you, like, oh, you're going to this National Institute on Aging and it's studying Alzheimer's. And they just put out like this really beautiful booklet about end of life. And it's a public kind of book about how to make choices and a little bit education of what, you know, we all should do for end of life care. And that's that kind of that communication product that was there. So all of that, all of those like clues and things were like telling me like, this is the right job. Wow. That's very awesome. Very cool. And, and so now you're doing, you're doing some, um, you know, what looks like to me as a layperson, pretty intense research on Alzheimer's um, and combining that with your background in health equity. So can you talk about, you mentioned you, you, you were leading health equity research in your field. Um, how did you get into that? And then how has that shaped what you're doing now? It's a yeah. huge, huge issue in our industry right now. And I feel like, a, like we were joking earlier, um, no one really quite knows how to describe to you what health equity is. <laughs> 
it's um, how what what my primary role at the National Institute on Aging is is to manage grantees who get federal dollars for um, research. And mm-hmm. in our division, we're in charge of funding Alzheimer's disease research. Um, and for the last um, nine years, we've uh, have gotten a special appropriation from Congress specifically for Alzheimer's disease. So our budget has increased like four times in the last nine years. Um, and we currently have a budget of $3 billion wow. to, um, to help solve and cure Alzheimer's. Uh, and there's a national Alzheimer's project act that, that we um, operate under. And um, in, in, in having these uh, appropriated, new appropriated funds, uh, we kind of uh, created a health disparities and Alzheimer's disease special interest topic to allow people to um, for these applications and that we're accepting these applications. And so the um, research investigators across the country uh, are coming in and sending in their applications to study Alzheimer's disease and the And, and how can we equalize the representation in studies? 
Yeah, yeah. So, so what are the steps to do that? So I know you're talking about the um, the, the grant recipients, right? Making sure that um, that those that are selected are representative, right? Um, but what what other what other tools are are out there to increase representation? Um, I think that what we need to have are more approaches in which we're bringing science out into the community. Um, mm. I think that the institutions that do the scientific research kind of have the the pathways that work and they kind of keep those pathways um, working and they don't want to create something new to uh, get a new audience or a new community um, uh, involved in the research. So, you know, if I need a hundred people and I can get a hundred people quickly this way, I'm going to keep doing it this way. Got it. Okay. Okay. So I think we need to incentivize, you know, the branching of new opportunities and new communities into our research. Got it. Got it. So it's, it's the path of least resistance problem in some cases is that I need this fast and this works. So I'm doing it even if the, even if the outcome is not necessarily addressing some of the health equity issues. Got it. Got it. And and then you think outreach and just making sure you're you're getting science into the community is, is another path to be helpful. Well, I mean, one of the things that you're talking about um, also sometimes um, like the the budget is kind of like the 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 way forward. So, you know, if your personnel is low or you know the institution isn't providing you enough resources saying that, of course, I'm going out into the community, but you only do it once a month and not once a week, or you meet with the same 10 people and not, you know, the 10 people of those 10 people so that you have a hundred people. So if you're not actively broadening, you know, your outreach and, you know, commit and committing money to, and people to the process, then, you know, that's, that's a real kind of, you know, um, situation that limits the way that recruitment happens. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, so what, what has been the community response to the, to the piece you wrote in JAMA? I mean, are people, are people receptive? Are more ideas coming? What's the, what's the kind of the environment right now? I mean, I think the environment is hopeful. I feel that um, there are opportunities for um, researchers to be mindful of who they need to recruit and why. Mm. Um, But also, I think they're, you know, I think they're coming against the idea that it's not easy. And they're getting right. a lot of resistance, as we kind of described earlier. So people, again, have to be creative and make new pathways into outreach. And that, and that is something that doesn't happen within a five-year project period. Right. Um, these are what things a challenge that, too, right? The, the, the typical project timeline, right? Yeah. Conducive. Yeah. Ah. And these relationships usually take decades, not, you know not you know a year or 12 months like it needs to be a persistent kind of relationship between 
institutions and the communities in which they serve. Um, I mean, I know, you know, certain areas, you know, they have, um, you know, they have certain hospitals that feed certain parts of the community, but, you know, when they do research, they're looking outside of the community, community that they serve because the community that they serve isn't, you know, research worthy, or they don't know how to talk to them about research. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, specialized, selective kind of um, decision making that of who you're outreaching to can, you know, limit the representation of studies. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. There's a lot of barriers, but I think I, back to what you're saying about incentives, right? Making sure that it's it's known, a known issue and incentivized might, might help um, at least a little bit to start. That's awesome. So, you know, in, um, you know, in our world in healthcare policy, uh, there's, there's so much out there about making sure health equity is top of mind. Uh, and that it's written, you know, even into a lot of the technology uh, vendors, uh, you know, what they what they have to collect, making sure that um, priority populations are represented. What what do you think of the whole trend? Because it, it is a little it's a little buzzy these days, right? And I think sometimes it gets lost. So, what does health equity mean to you? I mean, I feel sometimes these um, these phrases are very difficult to uh, op- operate with. Um, you know, health equity to me, you know, it equals representativeness. Like, you know, I can open up the demographic table of of a study and see that, you know, the the collection of participants, you know, are equal and they're not skewed in one way or another, that everyone got an opportunity to kind of be part of the study. but also health equity means, you know, not just the participants in the study, but also inc- being inclusive in the researchers that are part of the study. Um, because, uh, you know, diversity in researchers also brings diversity into science um, and the questions and the research questions that people mm. ask about uh, a certain uh, disease or a certain question uh, about science or or even the health policy because if you're you know if you're you're not uh, I'm in Washington DC and if you're not familiar with you know ward eight of DC and the shortages that they um, have and the disinvestments that they have and you're not familiar you know with that you won't make them a priority because you know you're you're kind of into your, you know, your where you are in Ward Six right. or Ward Five, and so it's um, making sure that all of the pieces are accounted for. Right, right. I love that. That's awesome. Um, and we're we're running out of time, um, but I did want you to comment. So I know you're from Omaha. A mutual friend may have told us, and also you were the captain of the debate team or the speech team. <laughs> what is the story with that? I mean, um, you know, <laughs> as a kid, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and I thought that, uh, uh, you know, speaking would be a good um, skill to have. And uh, our mutual friend is just very, 
uh, boisterous and uh, extemporaneous speaking was like a great skill that we both had. And that was just an <laughs> excellent opportunity uh, for, you know, three or four years to travel around the state and compete in extemporaneous speaking. So. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. I would have to walk around with my like Newsweek magazines and and you know having all you know I had to like collect all these primary references and things like that for that. that. So oh, that was well, amazing. You now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Well, anything else you wanna you wanna leave our listeners with? I mean, um, I think that it's you know it's important that. We look to examine, you know, uh, the structural racism that happens within our um, society and how it affects our science. And the way that we are um, treating members of society are also, you know, affecting their health. And those questions need attention.